0: You care about what you put on your body and what you put into the oceans, right? In regular sunscreens, you can find certain ingredients, such as the common oxybenzone that are toxic to corals and reef fishes, the thousands of tons of sunscreen that are washed off every year is contributing to the decline of coral reefs. Pretty worrisome, huh? Enter stream to sea the only strongly tested reef-friendly mineral sunscreen that is safe for the animals and you. You can shop their products guilt-free with eco-friendly, recycled, and biodegradable packaging. Check out all their products from sunscreen to skin and hair care and some cool eco apparel at stream2c.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M, the number two, S-E-A A.com. And don't forget to use the code WATERWOMEN, all one word, at checkout for 10% off your purchase of $10 or more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Water Women podcast. My name is Jill, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. I'm joined on today's episode with Melissa. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Jill. I'm doing great. How are you? (laughs)
0: I'm good. Thank you. It's so exciting to virtually meet you. We do have a mutual friend with Sarah who was on the podcast a couple episodes ago. So I've heard lots about you and I'm really excited to have you on.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited too. And um, I really enjoyed Sarah's podcast. So I'm looking forward to (laughs) our one as well.
0: Melissa, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into ocean science and what made you almost fall in love with the ocean?
1: Sure. So I guess I'd start way back when I was Teeny tiny, and I had with many people um, growing up in the era just an obsession with David Attenborough. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love David Attenborough, and I would make sure, like, if it was on TV, like, mum and dad, like, that was the only night of the week where I was allowed to stay up past my bedtime to watch it. And then just my love for animals um, kind of grew more. And when I got into high school, I had a really, really awesome teacher at my school that was passionate about marine science. And at the time, I thought I was gonna leave high school and then go off and do a science degree potentially then a teaching degree to be a high school teacher because I just love I love learning but I also love teaching other people about what I've learned because I love that same like awe factor that I get and I know other people enjoy that as well yeah so from there I moved from a little small town on the coast of northern New South Wales on the east coast of Australia I moved to Queensland, which is warmer climate and there's a university called the University of Queensland. And yeah, I chose that university because uh, <laughs> it's it's in Queensland, but more importantly, it's so close to the Great Barrier Reef and they had such a diverse program that um, I could get involved with. So I knew no matter what, I was probably going to end up liking something and just choose from there. Then as I got more and more into my degree, I realized that maybe teaching isn't so much for me because I really enjoyed research. And in my, at the end of my third year of uni, I did a summer research project at a turtle rookery just north of Brisbane. And I was there for three months. And that's kind of like where I built up my skills in project management and just working around turtles as well. And I just fell in love with that whole idea of, yeah, building a research project from the start and then having like a, tangible outcome at the end so that research was based off basically looking at vegetation and how it affects the success of sea turtle nests and it's changed the way that they now relocate nests in on that beach because we found that nests that were relocated into taller vegetation weren't really surviving that well because the roots would grow all the way down into the eggs so that's really cool so seeing that like outcome straight away from research was really exciting for me. I ended up graduating nearly two years ago with a Bachelor of Science and majoring in marine biology. And after I graduated, my supervisor from that summer research project was pretty excited to have me as an honours student, which in Australia we do an honours year, which is just a year of research and that's it it's kind of like doing half a master's degree so it's not as intense as master's because you don't have to do coursework and yeah that's basically where the rest of my like research career has been set off to
0: awesome so what are you doing now with your research
1: yeah so i i graduated from honors and now I'm doing my PhD, <laughs> so I kind of just went straight into it. I know it's, a bit, it's it was very daunting because I'm, I'm actually quite a young PhD student. I'm only 23, about to turn 24, and I didn't realise that at the time that a lot of PhD students that join, they've already kind of had part of their career. Um, they've gone off and done some research assistant work or maybe they've done an internship somewhere or maybe worked for the government. And then they've come back because they want to kind of elevate their career even further. So doing a PhD helps with that. For me, I after doing my honours, I knew that I wanted to go into academia. So I love the idea of um, researchers working together for a greater cause, but then also kind of working in collaboration with other NGOs. So for my honours year, was supported by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, in Australia. And that was really cool because they're quite a well-known NGO all around the world. They have uh, offices in almost every country. Yeah, New that's huge. Yeah, yeah. So WWF. And then now they're supporting me into my PhD as well. It was one of the main drivers for doing my PhD. And because I was so already involved in the project that I'd done in my honours year and publishing that work as well, it just made sense for me to go on and do a PhD straight away, and it's what I wanted to do. So, yeah, that's what I do now. I guess more focusing on like what my PhD is going to look like. We still haven't set it in stone. So, I've only just gotten past my first month of in my PhD, and most of your first year is literature reviews and building up your um, skills in things that you might want to do in your actual project work. So. I'm doing a lot of mathematical modelling, so trying to get my R skills up. I'll be working with really large... Yeah, (laughs) I'll be working with really large data sets. But generally, what my thesis will be about is how is sea turtle populations coping with climate change? So how many males are currently in the population? So I don't know if, uh, if your audience is familiar with it, but sea turtles, their sex isn't determined by the genetics given from their parents, but it's actually determined by the temperature of the nest when they're incubating in the sand. And that is really critical for a species that's ectothermic and also really long generation times as well. So whatever temperature was in the nest on a specific date, like 30 years ago, determined the sex of a sea turtle that's now reaching maturity and going off to breed like this coming season. Which just totally blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
0: that is super cool.
1: Yeah, it's bad because um, as an environmental um, landscape, when we look at it with climate change, it's changing quite dramatically and very quickly. So sea turtles, they've survived 120 million years of changes to the environment. They survived the KT extinction, which wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. (sighs) Yeah, so these guys are older than dinosaurs. They're tougher than dinosaurs. And then the thing that might get them is this climate change event that's happening right now that could increase the Earth's air temperature by two degrees in less than 80 years. And because turtles, for most species, they don't reach maturity until they're 20 or 30 years old, that could be within two to three generations of one species or one population. Oh, wow. Yeah, when we're talking about how how turtles are going to cope with climate change the overall aspect doesn't look great but the good thing about turtles having temperature dependent sex determination (laughs) is that because they are so sensitive to temperatures that we could actually go in there and artificially manipulate the temperatures to produce males if they aren't able to produce males on their own so
0: oh that that is so cool so like if we have like a couple generations where it's just like heavy females you guys could go in and actually like almost f- gently force there to be males just by yeah, changing the so temperature.
1: Exactly. It's it's a bit, it, from an ethical point of view, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if a species is like naturally dying out, how much um, intervention should you do before, you know, you let nature kind of take its course? Yeah. Because potentially what could happen is, like, we have so many sea turtle populations around the world. Almost every corner of a country has its own population of a turtle. species. <laughs> um, and then s- turtles themselves, they migrate across countries as well. So protecting turtles in one area might not protect them for their entire life. Yeah. Um, because they move um, depending on what age group they're in. So So they'll
0: be protected while they're in that country, but then once they migrate, it's kind of like a every man for himself situation because you don't know what other countries are doing to protect them
1: exactly exactly so for instance here in australia all sea turtle species are heavily protected you can get really big fines for just holding a sea turtle without having like a permit or something to do it that parks could fine you for doing that whereas loggerheads hatchlings so they're protected and loggerhead adult turtles are protected obviously in australia but when the hatchlings swim across the pacific ocean over to chile the governance and like protection over there isn't as strong and so we see a lot mm. of juvenile loggerhead turtles getting wiped out in the fisheries over there in either longline fishing or in trawl nets and then when they come when that cohort comes over to australia we've already got less individuals returning because they didn't survive that life stage that was so heavily threatened by the practices that are going on yeah. in other countries
0: wow that's so it is really important to not have universal but kind of like these guys should be protected at least to a bare minimum in certain areas where they're not really being looked at like that yeah
1: and so like for in australia so we have two green turtle populations on the east coast and the northern population is The one that we talk about the most because it's the largest green turtle population in the world. It's the one that has these huge, like, Arabata nesting kind of situation going on on Rain Island. And everyone's worried about this population going basically locally extinct because it's the largest population in the world. Like, obviously, we need to care about it.
0: Yeah. But
1: the southern population is growing really quickly as well. Oh, good. That's good. Yeah, it's filling in those niche spots where the northern population used to exist. So potentially we end up with just one really big southern population and a smaller northern population.
0: And the, like, the southern population would be taking up more area and kind of like expanding upwards in its like habitat range while the northern population would be shrinking. Am I understanding that right? Yes, yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. Okay, but you guys are also looking at how you could manipulate this so that we have this still strong population of sea turtles in that area.
1: Yeah, we still we still don't know for sure. So basically, um, a lot of the work that goes on in Rain Island is still working to protect that island because not only is it a really important sea turtle nesting site, it's also one of the largest aggregations of migrating nesting bird species in the southern hemisphere or something as well it's like some crazy number of birds that goes there to nest uh frigate birds and a couple of other species all nest on this island along with turtles at the same time <laughs> so it's a very for whatever reason um maybe it's like it's geographic location or uh, the way that the currents run along that island and then to top all of that obviously there's a whole bunch of turtles nesting here the largest migration of tiger sharks in the world also occurs towards Rain Island. So we have every year around the nesting season, thousands and thousands of adult female tiger sharks, mostly females, going to Rain Island to fatten up so that they're ready for breeding, which is just so basically this island is really important for not just turtles. It's important for birds. It's important for sharks. But it's just also like every has-
0: species almost.
1: Yeah, and it also is extremely culturally significant to um, the indigenous people. Because obviously it's so it's just
0: all around a very important island.
1: Exactly. And it has the first structure or something that was ever built in Australia. There's a small, like, kind of lighthouse watchtower thing that was built on there by convicts traveling to Australia way back in the 1700s. So it's a pretty important place. The justification to try and protect it makes sense so if there's sponsors and people that um, are willing to help protect it then obviously we're going to do everything that we can to try it's just the pace oh yeah the, absolutely yeah the pace of the climate change that we're experiencing is nothing that we've ever seen before so
0: yeah yeah It's interesting when you say um, you guys are also like you're you don't want to manipulate it too heavy and want to almost allow nature to take its course because that almost argues the question of like, is this really nature or is this a side effect of humans kind of
1: thing? So true. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So because if it is human induced climate change, then humans should be responsible for protecting the species or not letting it die out. Right.
0: Yeah, like, it's it argues the question of, like, if this is our fault, to what extent do we have to go to save it? Because if it is our fault, we should go to the greatest lengths to almost reverse the damage we've done. Yeah. But then you have people that would argue, be like, no, 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 this is just nature taking its course. This was bound to happen eventually. And there's no real way to know.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, I get uh, every time I've ever done media for this kind of stuff, doing my projects, there's always people in the Facebook comments writing fake news or um, this is propaganda for just getting more sponsorship for projects and whatever reason.
0: Oh, yeah, At the, the whole end of climate the day, change isn't real. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> like there's, there's like three different people in the world. There's people that dead set don't believe that climate change is, even exists. There's people that believe in climate change, but it's not our fault. And then there's people like us like that want to take responsibility for the human-induced climate change that we're experiencing. Yeah.
0: So And do their best to help prevent or reduce it.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think there's uh, – we don't have any hope trying to persuade people that don't believe in climate change, full stop, because there's other people in the world that believe that the Earth is flat, and they're probably the same people. <laughs> so... <Sorry>. Um, <laughs> Whereas the people who believe in climate change but might not think that it's caused by humans, like, they're the people that we have to try and persuade. And by showing them how we can protect sea turtles and maybe if they're able to contribute um, financially or whatever, like, through sponsorship, so, for instance, WWF, uh, they do, like, adopting animals, like and you get, like, a cute little plushie in the mail, but your money that you're donating goes towards a specific project that's protecting that animal. So people might be more inclined to do that if they know that they're specifically helping sea turtles because they love sea turtles.
0: Mm. I also find people are more inclined to donate if this sounds awful, but if they get something from it. So like those plushy sales or even a certificate, it just is like proof that your money is actually going somewhere and not just disappearing almost, even though it's not disappearing because it's being put to use. It's just like a visible physical form of your money. Yeah. I think
1: um I think it's yeah, it's either that or if you they can physically see evidence of animals dying. So for instance, WWF were um one of the leading organizations that were funding relief from the bushfires in Australia. And now they're doing like food drops and all that kind of stuff to help in these areas where there's no more vegetation for the animals to live. They were supporting wildlife care groups that were rehabilitating um, animals. And because there's physical evidence that animals are dying because of bushfires, people wanted to donate and contribute. But because climate change is something that's so long lived and well, long lived in terms of like, it happens over decades and it should happen over centuries. (laughs) Yeah. um, and because we don't get to see turtles grow up from a hatchling all the way until they're adults it's so hard to persuade people that their impact now is going to impact turtles in the future as well it's just really hard to wrap your head around
0: yeah it is even just thinking about how long turtles live in general like I went when I was in Australia I went diving down by Cook Island and saw like just got to be so close to these turtles which was just like an experience I'd never had and really like I don't want to say changed my perspective because I've always kind of had the same perspective but it really opened my eyes to. it's always so different than like reading about these animals and seeing them on TV versus like physically seeing them and being with them and just knowing that this animal has been alive for so long And yeah, it's just, that it's blown, mind blown. blowing okay. yeah, so like for yeah. instance, like
1: the, a green turtle hatchling that was born in 1990 is now only reaching adulthood this year like, that just blows my mind. Like, I wasn't yeah, even born that's... in 1990.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, me either. Like
1: It's, yeah, it's just what? so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And, like, the fact that there's turtles living in the ocean right now that were around all through, like, the 50s and 60s, like, it's just, yeah, it's really cool. And that in itself should be something to, like, marvel at that makes you want to protect these animals. Like, the fact that they can survive – all of these things up until they're 80, 90 years old. Yeah. It's just, it's something that's so important to acknowledge when you're considering conservation, that the animal yeah, had to absolutely. live that long. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it like, it made it this far and something we're doing is causing it to Yeah. not. Yeah.
1: And, and you know what? Like through, so a lot of the arguments that come from uh, people that don't believe we should be doing anything to, Help conserve species, particularly sea turtles. Uh, is that because oh well they because they've survived 120 million years? Like what makes this any different? Like I said, because it's happening on short, such a short period of time, and turtles live for so long. That's already one problem. But we also have the other problem where like, in order for turtles to cope with climate change, they can do two different things. Um, they can either shift the time of the year that they're nesting, so they can shift over time slowly into the cooler months of the year because they're trying to avoid that really hot period of the season. And that's not them on purpose. They're not consciously thinking about that, but it's evolution basically selecting for the animals that were breeding earlier in the season to come back and they'll have hatchlings that grow up into adults that then nest earlier in the season. And it just gets earlier and earlier and earlier until you're all into all the way into winter, which is what happens for, Flatback turtles, uh, for a lot of the populations that we have in Australia, they're a shallow nest. So normally it's less than 50 centimetres below the sand, which makes them really susceptible to heat-induced stress. And most of the flatback populations in Australia nest in, in winter months. And then the other thing that they can do is they can shift further and further towards the poles, so further away from tropical climates. And for obvious reasons, it's cooler there during that time of the year, so they don't have to worry about um, thermal stress. So on the east coast of Australia, in the last three decades, we've had more and more turtles nesting into New South Wales each year, which, if you guys ever want to look at a map of Australia, basically the whole east coast of Queensland has turtle nesting occurring onto it. And prior to probably the 1990s, it would be very rare to see turtles nesting into New South Wales because it's just too cold. The eggs wouldn't even survive in the sand because the temperature would get below twenty four degrees, which is lethal. Um, oh,
0: but now, now it's... summer,
1: yeah, it's warm enough that the sand can be over twenty five degrees overnight, and the eggs are surviving. They take three months to incubate, <laughs> which is really long compared to like two months um, for a normal nest. But but it's still um, happening. It's still happening, and those turtles, when they when they hatch, um, I don't know if you know much about um, imprinting. So um, basically, the theory is that when like hatchlings come out of the sand, that they imprint the geographic position on the earth. Have you heard of this before?
0: I've I've vaguely heard of it, but please, like, please describe it because there may be some people listening who haven't heard of this.
1: Yeah, so um, some of you might know that turtles have, like, a natural GPS system logged into their brain. A bunch of other animals have it too, so crocodiles are really well known for it, um, a lot of pigeons. But basically the way, the mechanism that it works in turtles is that they have a special type of small mineral that's floating around in their cerebral fluid. I think it's called manganite or something and basically it orientates itself to the Earth's magnetic field and their brain will imprint to it and that tells them where they are on the surface of the planet which is just the coolest thing ever. Wow. That is so <laughs> cool. It is extremely cool and the fact that a sea turtle hatchling can, for instance a loggerhead that is born at Repos, which is um, in Queensland will swim out into the EAC, which is um, East Australian Current. and If it'll you watch Finding Nemo,
0: you better be yeah. familiar with that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's exactly what happens. Um, they don't <laughs> find their parents. That's the only <laughs> that. I have an issue with that. And also, <laughs> the fact that <laughs> the fact
0: that um, Crush is 150 years old. <laughs> I don't, like, watching watching Finding Nemo as a marine biologist, you want to enjoy it, but you're like, well, like, you did a good job here, but like there's room for improvement
1: yeah like the fact that that they get all the way from the great barrier Reef to sydney in like two days so. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway but yeah so yeah no one actually knows how long sea turtles actually live for because no one's ever followed one from a hatchling all the way until the eldest death so we have loggerhead hatchlings that have been followed until they're like Fifty years old or something, but that's obviously not as old as what turtles can live for. We know that we, they yeah. that they can live for longer than that. I don't think 150 years old sounds. It could be possible, but I think it would be pretty rare. <laughs> but getting back to imprinting, so yeah, the hatchlings jump in the East Australian Current. They go down past New Zealand. They go across the Pacific Ocean, and that takes a couple of years to do that. And then by the time they get over to South America, um, they'll stay over there until they're about maybe 10, and they're about the size of a pretty large dinner plate. Like, it'd be a big meal if you had it. (laughs) That's that really critical stage that I was talking about earlier when they get caught in trawl nets and longline fishing and stuff like that. So we we see a lot of bycatch of loggerhead juvenile loggerheads over in South America. And then when they're ready to come back to Australia, they go across kind of across the where the equator is. And then they arrive back in, they go through like New Caledonia. Sometimes they drop off at New Caledonia or Fiji and they'll live there. And, or they come all the way back to Australia and they'll pick any sort of feeding area that they find suitable along the, the East coast and then stay there for the rest of their life. Like that is their feeding ground and they will not change places. So, it's a real problem when you see areas that are on a green zone or something where you're allowed to go fishing or anchoring or whatever, and for, for something like a green turtle, if an entire seagrass meadow gets removed, that could be an animal's food source, and they don't know where else to go to find food. And then that's yeah. when we see sick turtles and all that kind of stuff. So the only time that they leave their feeding area is when it's time to breed, and they know where they were born, so they kind of just start heading back towards that direction. And along the way, if it's a female, she's just trying to get to the nesting ground. But the males always arrive at the breeding grounds earlier. And now what they'll do is, it's quite strategic, they'll like find points of headlands or like where the end of an island is, or basically they know that it's a route that a turtle, a female turtle has to go through in order to get to where the nesting ground is. And they basically mate with her like along the way, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that does. Yeah, so the boys will stay there for like a month or so. The female is only passing through and she might only be there for a week and then just keep swimming and swimming.
0: So the males will mate with multiple females who pass through here?
1: Yes, and females obviously can mate with multiple males as well. So for each species, it's really interesting. Like when you look at the genetic makeup of a clutch, so a clutch is a group of eggs that she lays and for each turtle, it's different on how many clutches they can lay in a season, but it's more than likely between three to six. Some green turtles lay 10. <laughs> uh, no. It really depends. It really depends where they're nesting. So if it's like a, maybe maybe it's like a low density nesting beach, they have the space and the time to lay 10 clutches. But if it's a really high density um, nesting area, like Rain Island, because there's so many attempts to try and nest because they get so regularly uh, interrupted by another turtle like crawling over the top of them or whatever other that you know there's and they're even um, digging up another clutch to them they know that something's wrong and sometimes you'll get a turtle that just gets startled if they touch another egg or something like that and they'll just stop so it's really dependent on the turtle on how many clutches that they lay but for the genetic makeup of a clutch in green turtles you get like maybe one or two fathers present in the clutch. And then for other species, like I know loggerheads cannot have up to four fathers or five fathers present in the clutch. So that doesn't mean that one hatchling has five different fathers. It means that, say, if you had 100 eggs, then 20 of those babies could be from one father, another 20 could be from another father, and then 20 could be, and so on.
0: That is so cool. So So they're like half siblings almost, rather than full siblings. Exactly. Exactly. So that is um, so re- cool because, like, with yeah. m- other species, we generally think of like, it doesn't matter if a female mates with multiple males, only one of those, like, only one of her eggs is going to be fertilized by one sperm. Like, it's going to be one father for that offspring. That is so cool.
1: Yeah, and uh, the wow. way that they do it is basically if you imagine the oviduct duct to have kind of like little folds on the sides, so little pockets and every time a male will mate with her that sperm gets stored in one of those little pockets on the sides of the oviduct and then when she's ovulating and the eggs are going down the oviduct she'll release those little pockets of sperm into the oviduct and you get like a mixture of each of the father's genetics into the eggs they do think that potentially Either the last male that bred with her or the first male that bred with her might have the majority of fatherhood in the clutch, but it varies so much between individuals that they still don't 100% know. And it's really, really hard to measure as well because the cloaca of a sea turtle, so sea turtles have one hole, They they urinate and defecate and breed with one hole kind of like a chicken, so it's a cloaca. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and the cloaca of a female is so tightly sealed that researchers that have tried to collect sperm from the OB duct right after they've watched her mate with a male go out and try and catch her and then try to open the oviduct to get a swab and they just can't open it. <laughs> like it's sealed shut. Like she's not, letting, she's not opening it up. So a lot of people also think that when you see sea turtles um, breeding, especially if it's not, in a normal or usual breeding area or if it's just off the nesting beach during the nesting part of the season or the breeding part of the season, that maybe they're actually not copulating properly. Like he's just holding on for dear life and <laughs> trying really hard, but she was just not letting him in. We haven't got any solid evidence to say that every single mounting is proof of a breeding copulation.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, it is super interesting. But yeah, just the fact that yeah she can take up to multiple males and she can still choose whether or not she wants to breed with him it's just so cool (laughs) yeah sea sea turtle females are are boss ladies yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) so you're obviously using your phd to look into like what research can do to help these turtles um and aside from donating what can like the everyday person do to help obviously aside from donating because we've touched on that but like is there little things people can do to help these sea turtles
1: yeah, so essentially the the biggest thing that people can do at home is trying to re- reduce those other additional threats that turtles are facing in order to give them that extra kind of like uh, safety net um, through this really tough time that they're probably about to go through, which is climate change, rapid climate change. Mm. And if there's more and more individuals in the population, then there's going to be a greater genetic pool that hopefully – a large portion of that genetic pool will have the right genes in order to get through climate change, survive that, and, you know, continue the population onwards. And the best way we can do that is trying to maximize the amount of turtles that are on the population. So trying not to kill them. (laughs) The biggest things that you can do are limiting your plastic use. So hopefully you guys are all really educated on that because they say that by 2050, there's going to be more plastics in the ocean than there will be fish which is not good for turtles because turtles love eating jellyfish, which looks like plastic bags. They also love eating sea squirts and salps, which are other squishy things, sponges, corals. They eat a whole bunch of variety of stuff depending on the species. But a lot of the time, because you're underwater and you just want to see food opportunistically, when they see plastic, they think it's food. They automatically think it's food. And turtles don't have the ability to regurgitate their food. They only have the ability to regurgitate water. And that's because of their really crazy looking throats. You guys should Google sea turtle throat or sea turtle esophagus. And essentially it looks like some creepy, spiky monster from uh, a a movie (laughs) but it has all these backwards facing spines so that when a turtle for instance like a leatherback leatherbacks love eating jellyfish they'll swallow seven or eight jellyfish at a time and then they'll hold it in their throat and they'll squeeze the esophagus really really tight and regurgitate the water at the same time but those backward facing spines allow the water to get out but don't let the food get
0: out so, it's yeah. kind of like so those that's how flaps they and- that you can like push in, but they won't let you go back out. Like, it only yeah, allows yeah, like so- one way entry for solid things.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, it's a problem when we start ingesting things like plastic because it's a solid food and it doesn't get regurgitated. So, if the sea turtle swallows the plastic, um, there's two different things that can happen. It either can pass through because it's thin enough and it's not large enough that it'll stop any of the valves from closing or something like that or it gets impacted and it can start causing rotting within the um, organs of the turtle and then we get this symptom called floating syndrome uh, which is essentially when there's an air pocket built up from all the gases from everything decomposing and they just end up sitting at the surface and you'll see turtles that are really really sick sitting at the surface Um, They don't have much energy to move because they've tried eating food and they're not able to get any of the energy from it because something's wrong with their digestive system. And they'll get big barnacles and algae and everything, and then they end up washing up on the beach. So second thing. So first thing was reduce your plastic. Second thing is if you see a sick turtle, do not touch it. Do not pick it up. Don't put it back in the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Call, Call somebody like, for instance, in Australia we have RSPCA. Um, if you're on the north coast of New South Wales, you can call Seabird Rescue. Either one of those groups will come and pick up the sick turtle and take it to rehabilitation where the turtle is going to get better. Or if it is really sick, they can euthanize it humanely. Whereas yeah. um, I, I'm not sure what kind of groups you have in America, but you can probably call uh, like a parks group, like a marine park ranger or something like that. Anybody basically who has a permit to hold a turtle. (laughs) I I love that everyone's super passionate about like caring for turtles, but if it is a really sick Unless you have the proper
0: training. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Unless you have the proper training, you don't know how sick that turtle is. um, And you don't know that putting it back in the ocean is going to immediately make it better. And also turtles love basking in the sun. (laughs) Like they'll purposefully, (laughs) I know it's really common in Hawaii because there's cold currents going past Hawaii, that green turtles would just haul themselves out onto the beach and bask, and everyone in Hawaii knows that turtles like to bask, so there's no issues with people accidentally picking up turtles and putting them back in the water. But I have heard of people picking up healthy turtles that are trying to bask in the sun and putting them back in the water, oh. and the turtle's like, "What the hell?" <laughs>
0: <I'm> <laughs> so just trying to enjoy myself here, like
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, like, even if you see a turtle that looks sick, snorkeling or something, just leave it alone. You can do more damage stressing the animal out by trying to catch it or whatever it is just call somebody who knows what they're doing please don't yeah. try, try to be like an instagram hero and do it yourself so that was the second thing the third thing is just think about what you're eating on your plate so i mentioned before that you know, we have loggerhead turtles that get caught commonly on long line fishing and tr- through trawl nets. Luckily, in Australia, we have these things called TED devices, which are turtle exclusion devices that are attached to nets. And essentially, it's just like a little gate that sits at the top of the trawl net so that when the turtle accidentally goes through a trawl net, most of the time the turtle will be at the top of the net. And when it gets to that gate, it's heavy enough that it can push it open. And it can okay leave. And it also works for dolphins as well. So those ten devices are compulsory for like trawlers all in Australia since the early 2000s. And we've seen significant drop-offs in the amount of turtles that are drowning in trawl nets, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, that's good. But in other countries... It's not the same. So just be more mindful about what you're eating. If you do eat fish, try and do some more research on the type of fish that you are eating. Does it come from a sustainable fishery? What are the kind of practices that are done in the country where you're, um, where the fish has come from? And if you can, try to buy locally sourced fish because at the end of the day, you're always doing better by sourcing food locally rather than just buying yeah. tins of cans that have come from Vietnam or China or something like that. So. <laughs> So what was that? That was number three. And then if you live near a turtle nesting beach, you probably already know about this, but turtles are extremely sensitive to light. And for nesting female turtles at nighttime, what they'll do is they'll try and find the darkest areas of the beach because there's something cued into them that tells them that dark means shade and shade means better success. So they don't know that. They don't consciously think of that. They're everything. Everything that's programmed into their brain. They don't have a conscious thought about it. Their brain is telling them what to do. (laughs) Um, But they will actively seek out darker areas of beaches. And if that area of beach all of a sudden has, you know, a high-rise building put up behind it, that t- turtles will instantly just stop going to that beach to nest anymore. That might mean that they have to go to a beach that is not good for incubating eggs. So it might have less trees to shade the eggs or maybe it is a dog beach and dogs love to come along there and dig up eggs or whatever yeah. the reason could be. We want to try and keep these nesting beaches as turtle-friendly as possible and putting up high-rise buildings and big street lights that create sky glow is something that prevents turtles from nesting there. And the second reason is that hatchlings are extremely sensitive to light because they use a really important light cue to know where the ocean is. So the whitewash of the ocean at nighttime on a really dark night is quite obvious because it's like the brightest thing on the horizon. So they're looking for the brightest thing on the lowest horizon. And they'll go down sand dunes on purpose because their body's telling them go downhill because um, the beach starts higher up. But if there's a streetlight behind the beach that they've just hatched from, that can distract them from the brightness of the horizon and they can just turn Mm. around, go through really tall vegetation. Maybe there's snakes and other things, that, bigger crabs or birds or literally anything that could eat a (laughs) hatchling. And then the worst part is if that streetlight, if it's a streetlight, then obviously there's a street, which means cars and Hatchlings get crushed, they can fall down drains, they can get picked up by cats or dogs or whatever it is. So, yeah. if you do live near a nesting beach, um, even just closing the blinds and preventing the amount of light glow that's coming from your house. At Mon they have installed like special street lights that basically emit light facing downwards rather than up and outwards, which is really cool.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And,
1: yeah. So that's just like one of the more important things. But the main thing is, yeah. yeah. And driving slow when you're like, I don't think, I don't know how many people listening would drive boats, but just driving boats slow through shallow water areas where, you know, turtles are going to be. Because turtles, yeah. um, you've been in the water when uh, there's boats driving around. You don't know what direction that boat is coming from. Yeah, and, no, you just, like, you just hear a boat. It's kind of scary. You
0: just hear a boat.
1: Yeah, yeah. And obviously turtles, they breathe air. So they do have to come to the surface to breathe air. And when they do come to the surface and they can hear a boat, they don't know what direction that's coming from. They're just hoping that they'll be able to get out of the way in the time. And unfortunately, yeah. many instances turtles don't survive that. So,
0: yeah. So there is lots of things that just everyday people can do to help oh, these guys safe, which is awesome. There's a lot. Yeah. And,
1: yeah, and you can um, sponsor um, for NGOs like... WWF or support like smaller rehabilitation places that you know that are in your area or not doesn't even have to be in your area just groups that are trying their best especially in times like this during um, quarantine so obviously they might not get as many visitors or something that would normally fund what they do to rehabilitate turtles because a lot of these places do tours and they're unable to run tours at the moment so just doing anything that you can yeah
0: and if people want to follow along with you and your publications and your journey, is there anywhere else on social media or anything that they can find you and follow along? A hundred percent. So you guys can follow
1: me on Instagram. My name on Instagram is miss uh, underscore totally underscore obsessed. <laughs> For obvious reasons. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I post on there pretty regularly. I've traveled, Papua New Guinea which is was really cool um, got to experience what life was like over there and conservation work for them and that was um one of the most eye-opening experiences for me because they do ethical turtle husbandry there oh, and cool. a lot of places that you potentially the listeners might go to on cruise ships and stuff like that they don't do ethical turtle husbandry so mm-hmm. just educate yourself more about the type of turtle activities that you're getting involved in, especially when going to developing countries. If a turtle has its flippers tied up on a beach and someone's offering you a hundred dollars to release it, that's not ethical. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And the same goes for if you see a hundred turtles in a tiny pool of dark water, and they're offering you ten bucks to take a, a photo with a hatchling. That's not ethical either. So Absolutely. just be yeah, just be really responsible about what you're actually promoting. Even if um, it seems as though the people really need the money, at the end of the day, they're not benefiting the turtles in any way. So yeah,
0: so yeah. do your research and also just use some common sense to what you think is right for these yeah. turtles. Exactly. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was so exciting to have you on.
1: Thank you so much. It was so great to talk. (laughs) I love talking about turtles. (laughs) It's my favorite thing to do.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. Make sure to follow Melissa on all her social medias and keep up with all the cool work she's doing with these turtles. As always, you can find Water Women on all social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at the Water Women Pod. Also, check out our website at waterwomenpodcast.weebly.com. And if you're interested in working with us, send us an email at waterwomenpodcastgmail.com. At and until next week, stay salty.